We're going to be looking at Psalm 46 this morning. And uh, just before we read the passage, there's a, a couple of things that I just want to mention because uh, there's some words in Psalm 46 which are not uh, usually used in English. So I just wanted to give a, give a meaning to them and explain what we're going to do with them. One of them is in the title where it says, Set to Alamoth. And Alamoth literally means girls. And so it's quite likely that this psalm was written to, for kind of female voices. Okay, and that would have been the way it was sung. But uh, the meaning of some of these terms is, you know, up for debate. But that's, that's probably what it means. And the other term, which is one which comes up in quite a lot of the psalms, is this word, which you'll see at the ends of verse 3, 7, and 11, which is the word selah. And again, meaning of that is um, up for debate, but it probably means something like pause or musical interlude. So it's kind of musical notes for the, for the psalmist as he's written this, and you can see in the title he's written it for the choir director. And so, given that this word appears three times, as we read it, we are going to pause where it says to pause. And I'd encourage you, when there's that uncomfortable silence because no one's saying anything, i.e. me, I've stopped reading the Bible, um, I'd encourage you to just reflect on what has just been read. And to help you, the words will appear on the screen. And so we will be doing that three times. So hopefully that now allays any uncomfortableness you may feel. So Psalm 46. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. 
God, we want to honour you this morning. We love the fact that we have just met with you, rather that you have met with us. And Father, we pray, would you continue your work amongst us, even as I'm speaking, that the work that you do by your Spirit would be so in us, God, so deep, so real, so lasting. Father, take the words that I say and use them for your glory. May each of us be transformed as we encounter you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So today I'm going to talk about a picture. And we've had a lot of uh, talk already about in pictures about wetness, rain and, and the like. And we're going to talk about something else. The title of the talk is There is a River. And we're going to explore that. Um, it appears in this psalm in, in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And so I'm going to structure the talk. I'm going to talk through what that actually means. So here in the psalm, why the psalmist has written it. We're going to look at the kind of historical uh, context of that. And then I'm going to go on and draw out some lessons for us as we look at this symbolism of the river and what it might mean for us as a church. And I feel that there's going to be a significant overlap with things that we have already heard so far this year. Most notably the call to be thirsty, which again was referred to this morning. But as I was preparing it, I don't want you to think that I just haven't listened for six weeks and I've come up with this idea. No, I've been listening very much. And I feel that this is God, something God wants to underline for us as a church again this morning. So I'm going to start by explaining the picture in the psalm. And uh, if you just think about some major cities in the world, uh, many of them have a river as a source of water, or many of them have a river running right through the middle of them. If you think of the likes of Cairo with the Nile, or Guyana City with the Orinoco going through it, or uh, New Delhi with the Yamuna River, or Vienna with the Danube, or London with the Thames, Baghdad with the Tigris. There's many, many examples. (coughs) Jerusalem is not one of those examples. Jerusalem doesn't have a river within the city. There's no natural water source within the city of Jerusalem. Instead, Jerusalem was served by some springs which were outside the city wall. And what that meant was that it meant that made Jerusalem vulnerable to attack. Because if you wanted to conquer Jerusalem, you'd just have to come along with your army, block up the springs, and very soon the city would fall. It doesn't, it takes much longer to starve a city than to thirst a city or create a drought there. And so what it meant was that down through history, the people of Jerusalem had to live in faith that God was on their side and that actually their water supply would be protected. Well, Psalm 46 was written probably about the time of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, which happened in the reign of uh, King Hezekiah, who was king of Judah between 716 and 687 BC. And it was just a few years after the northern uh, nation of Israel had been taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. And that had happened, and then they come and turn up on uh, Jerusalem doorstep. And Hezekiah 
is quite fearful about this. He's quite fearful that the city is vulnerable to this potential lack of water because there's no water inside the city. And so he takes steps to remedy it. So if we um, look back to 2 Chronicles and chapter 32... And at the start of this chapter, we read this account of what happens uh, with King Hezekiah. So it says, Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city. This is Hezekiah cutting off the springs. And they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. So we see a few things there. He's kind of refortifying the walls, he's increasing their armaments, and he's blocking up all these springs which supply water to the city. And he's doing it so that the enemy have no water supply. Because this is kind of a two-way thing. And you might be thinking, but what about the water for the city? Well, he was a clever chap. Verse 30 of 2 Chronicles 32. It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gion, which is one of these springs, and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. And the writer of Two Kings phrases it slightly differently. In 2 Kings 20, 20, he says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So what happened is, and this map may help, um, you'll see the spring there, the Gion spring on the right-hand side, and then this red wiggly line is the conduit. And so he blocked up the external source of the spring and they cut a path through the rock from the spring. So it went under the city. This is all underground, the tunnel, and it fills that lower pool that you see there on the bottom left. And you'll see it's labelled Hezekiah's Tunnel. That's what he did. So he blocks it up so the invading Assyrians think that it's blocked up, there's no water there, but actually he redirects it through this under underground conduit. And you might be thinking, well, that's quite wiggly. Yeah, it is. Probably because it followed a natural conduit through the limestone rock that Jerusalem's built on. Now that tunnel is 1,748 feet long, which is about a third of a mile which, for the locals amongst you, is about the length, almost exactly the same length, as Shirley Park from Herdis Road to the New Asda. (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't know Shirley Park, and you're more acquainted with Solihull shopping, it's pretty much exactly the same distance as Solihull train station to John Lewis. Okay? (laughs) I hope that's helpful. (laughs) 
And this conduit was dug from both ends. A third of a mile. So, I mean, that's, a, that's fairly lengthy. Dug from both ends, and the conditions would not have been pleasant, I think it's fair to say. And they discovered in 1880 a plaque on the wall of the tunnel which described how they actually went about this. So this is all kind of, you know, well-verified archaeologically. But the key thing is that this city that had no natural water source inside its walls now has a natural water source inside its walls. You see that the the pool is just outside that thing that's labelled City of David, that dotted line there. This extension dotted line around the the left-hand side, that's the extension to Jerusalem that Hezekiah built. So the city now can say there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That's what the psalmist is referring to here. The city that had no water now has water. And of course, a city that's vulnerable to attack because of its water supply that now has a water supply is obviously going to be a glad place. And that's why there's gladness in the city. And I think this picture, and I'd like you to have this in your mind, that there is this natural river, this natural spring, the Gion Spring, and the streams from that are now inside the city. That's the picture I'm going to keep coming back to. And as well, at the outset of the sermon, ten minutes in, um, I want to remind you of something Rob preached about last week where he talked about the poor in spirit. Because this is a message for the poor in spirit. And he defined the poor in spirit as being those who know that in and of themselves they have no resources. Those who know that they need God, they have nowhere else to go. God is their only hope. And this river is for people like that. God's given us this word, thirsty, and that is a characteristic of those who are poor in spirit. So we're going to look at what the river symbolises now. So firstly, the river symbolises the presence of God. I don't know about you, but um, I often feel very reassured when someone more experienced than me is around me when I'm doing something that I'm not comfortable doing. Give you an example, plumbing. A few years ago, we decided that it would be a good idea, because we were putting a conservatory on our previous house, and the inside tap would then have been inside the conservatory wall, um, which we thought wasn't that good. So we wanted to move the outside tap round to the other side of the house. And I thought, this is something I need help with, and so I called my dad. And he came up with this drill bit, which was almost as tall as me. Um, I don't know quite how he got it in his car. Anyway, so this huge thing and various other paraphernalia, and we set to work. And um, I mainly watched and passed him tools. Um, and, uh, but I, I wasn't worried at all because he was doing it. He was there. Nothing could go wrong. And in fact, nothing did go wrong, and we had a working tap. However, just in case you think I'm totally incompetent, I did learn from him. And just a few weeks ago, we had a stiff tap and it's now not stiff anymore. Oh, yeah. Good yeah. 
So, <laughs> any tax problems, call Mr. Byrne. <laughs> but when, I don't know whether you noticed, but when we read Psalm 46, there is so much in there about the presence of God and the reassurance that it brings to the people because they've got God alongside them. Much as me plumbing with my dad alongside. But let's just look very briefly through that psalm again. Verse 1, refuge and strength and help. That's what the psalmist says about having God there with them. There's a lack of fear in verse 2. As we go through to verse 4, we see that there is gladness there. We see that God, in verse 5, is in the midst of the city. So she is immovable. There's going to be help there by God in the morning. In verse 7, God is with us. He is our stronghold. There's a strength because God is there. Verse 8, look at his works. He does stuff when he's there with his people. He brings desolation in verse 8. He brings an end to war. He breaks up all the paraphernalia of war. And then there's the instruction to be still or to cease striving and know that he is God. Why? Because verse 11, God is with us. He is our stronghold. It is all about the presence of God amongst his people. And the river is used as a picture of that. If you just read verses 4 and 5 alongside each other, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. So the river is there in the middle of the city. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. It seems that this river symbolises the very presence of God. The river speaks of victory, speaks of security, speaks of safety, of peace, of immobility, of strength, of the acts of God amongst his people. The city of God is a place where the presence of God is. Why? Because God has set up his camp there. He is amongst his people. And so instead of fear of the enemy, there brings gladness. Instead of a siege, they have water. Instead of oppression, they have victory. There is a river that symbolises that God is with his people. The presence of God is there. So that's the first thing that the river symbolises. The second thing that the river symbolises is the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, We looked at the story of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was referred to this morning as well, um, but we're gonna, uh, we're gonna look at it in a bit more detail. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, you'd probably find that helpful. The Feast of Tabernacles is a feast that caused every year uh, the Israelites gathered together or the Jewish people gathered together and they looked back at the time uh, Israel had spent in t- living in tents in the wilderness and that was a that was a key element of the festival but the festival the feast also focused on water and on each day of the feast and it ran for a week a golden flagon or picture, pitcher was filled with water. 
And the place where they got the water from was the Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam was on that map as the end point of that underwater stream. So this river that comes from the presence of God and the stream that runs through and makes the city glad accumulates in this pool called the Pool of Siloam. And that is where the water is drawn from. And the water is drawn from there and then carried in a procession led by the high priest up to the temple where the water is then poured out as an offering to God. Now the symbolism is heightened even more when we realise that to the, to the Hebrews, the, the spring of Gion symbolises the line of David, the kingly line of David, this line of kings which would reign forever and ever and ever. And the reason it does that is because the Gion spring is the place where Solomon was anointed king. That very first step in that eternal dynasty as David hands over the reins to his son Solomon. That happened at Gion. And so now the very water that was there at Gion is now gathered in a pool, taken to the temple and poured out as an offering. That is powerful stuff. And we just read that Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone's thirsty. But he, in doing this, Jesus re-explains the whole thing. For the people who are listening. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John helpfully explains to us, but he said this of the spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is really saying is there is a river. And you are grateful for this river because you know where that water that's just been poured out has come from. You're grateful for that because that is a provision of God for you. But let me tell you something, there is a different river on offer. Not just one that flows into the city, which means you've got a natural water supply. One that accumulates in a nice pool that you can gather around and get this water. No, there is a different river on offer, one that is inside you. One that brings permanent life. This is the river of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so for us, if there's this river of the Holy Spirit, how can we not draw from it? How can we not want that river welling up in us, that the rivers of living water may flow out? You see, it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who transforms us to look increasingly like Jesus. So we need him in us. And we are a church who want to be led by the Holy Spirit. We are a church who are passionate about the presence of God. If you're visiting us, I hope that was evident in our worship this morning. We are a people who believe that it's absolutely vital that we are filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That is a characteristic of the poor in spirit, who know that they need God above all else. But this is going to be a battleground. It's going to be a battleground. There will be a pressure, and I don't mean from amongst us, 
but there will be a pressure to dial down things of the spirit, to not look too extreme. I was talking to a friend just last week who was saying that he has heard of a number of churches who are deciding that the gifts of the spirit the gifts of the spirit are not to be used in Sunday meetings. Why is that? Why is that? Again, last week when Rob was preaching, he preached about a kingdom culture being a pervasive thing. Something that runs through everything that we do, everything that we are. We must pursue this. We must pursue this. The filling and the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives must be so pervasive that we cannot dream of boxing him in or out of particular aspects of our lives, whether it be Sunday meetings or Monday at work, or Tuesday at the school gate, or Friday at the bingo club. No, not bingo club. Uh, (laughs) Disco. (laughs) Handing out tracks as people go into the bingo club. How can we do that? How could we do that to the precious Holy Spirit? He is our counsellor. He is our friend. He's our comforter, the one who draws alongside us, the one who assures us of our status as children of God, the one who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, the one who produces fruit fruit of the Spirit in us, the one who is a down payment or deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the one with whom we're told to walk alongside, the one we're told to go on being filled with. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us gifts for glorifying God. He is the one who gives us boldness to witness. He is the one who draws our attention to Jesus. He is the one who stirs us to repent and be restored to God. He is the one who opens our eyes to see the very depths of the treasures of the word of God. And so much more. How could we possibly think about excluding him from anything that we do? So as I said, we're a church who wants to be led by the Holy Spirit, passionate about his presence and filled with him. There is a river and this river is the Holy Spirit and its streams make glad the city of God. Now there could well be some of you this morning who feel that you're not in the river who through the worship, when there was all this talk of rain, you were putting up an umbrella. It could be that even as I've read those words of Jesus, there's a, there's a kind of disconnect between that and your experience. You don't know what, what these rivers of living water look or feel like. And maybe even as I read out some of those things, that you think, yeah, but I don't know what that means. Well, I think there's a danger of overcomplicating it. So let me simplify it by telling you my story very briefly. I came home one day from school. I was 11. And I sat down at the dining table with my mum. And she said to me, Simon, do you speak in tongues? 
It's an alternative to how did your day go, I suppose. (laughs) I said, no. Why do you ask? And she said, well, I find that tongues really helps me when I pray. Would you like that? And I said, yeah. And so she prayed for me. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't dramatic. I was still sat at the dining table when she finished praying. And for some people it is much more dramatic than that. So it wasn't dramatic for me, but it was significant. Because things changed from that point onwards. Why? Because the river began to flow. There is a river, and it is the river of the Holy Spirit. But the third thing that the river symbolises is healing. I've mentioned the pool of Siloam a few times, and that might kind of be ringing some reminders in your mind, because you may have heard of it before. And that's a good thing. In John chapter 9, so if you're still in John 7, just flick over the page. John chapter 9, we see the pool of Siloam appear. So remember the pool of Siloam is the place where this river that fl- or this stream that flows from the spring of Gion accumulates. John chapter 9 tells the story of a man who is born blind, who's brought to Jesus so his disciples can have a theological question answered. The theological question is this. Did the man sin, and that's why he's blind, or did his parents sin because he's uh, blind from birth? So it could be their fault. And Jesus says, neither. He's blind so that you can see who I am and how amazing God is. I paraphrase slightly. But in verse 6 of chapter 9 of John, we read this. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to the blind man's eyes. Nice. (laughs) And he said to him, go where? Wash in the pool of Siloam. Hang on a minute. So he's now been told to go and wash in the stream that comes from the river that makes the city of God glad. That is awesome. That is awesome. And so the man went away and washed and came back seeing. John is so matter-of-fact about it. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So off he went, washed and came back seeing. (laughs) There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Gladness here because the man who had never seen a thing now sees. That is amazing. And this stream becomes the source of healing. And when the man reports it in verse 11, he he says to the authorities who are kind of querying this uh, strange thing, he answered and said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. That's one way to describe mud being wiped on your face. Anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed. And I received sight. Again, just very simple. 
Well, of course, if you go to the river that symbolizes the presence of God, if you go to the river that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, you're going to get healed. Because that's what God does. There are at least two other places in Scripture, but two that I can think of, where the river of God is described. We're going to look at one of them briefly now because it ties in with this idea. On the very last page of your Bible, you will find Revelation chapter 22, which starts like this. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I'll just read that again in case you are still flicking through your Bibles. Because note where the river comes from. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." In the other great prophecy about the river, which is Ezekiel 47, that prophetic word ends with, by the river on its bank, on one side and the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. There is something about the river of God that brings healing. And when we read that, there is then no surprise that the blind man gets healed when he goes and washes in that river. The river flows from the throne, the very presence of God and the Lamb, and it brings healing. Healing to individuals and healing to nations. And this is something God is doing amongst us at the moment. A few weeks ago, in fact it was the first day back at work after the Christmas holidays, I felt pretty rough in the morning and at lunchtime I decided that enough was enough and I went home Uh, I was throwing up and I'll spare you the details I went to bed and uh, I felt a bit better by the evening and uh, I got up to essentially say good good night to the boys and at bedtime Joseph asked me if he could pray for me that Jesus pray that Jesus would make my head better and I did have a headache I said yes. The next morning, I woke up and I felt okay. So I came downstairs and when Joseph came down, I said, Joseph, uh, God made me better. And he looked very pleased. And then he said, is God pleased with me for praying? (laughs) And I mean, there's this thing in our house that if you don't ask nicely for something, then you don't get it. So maybe it was linked to that. Um, (laughs) Maybe. But I just said to him, I said, God is pleased with you because he loves you. And he loves it when you pray. And I think that's the attitude that we need to have towards healing. God loves you and he loves it when you pray. If we pray for someone to get healed, it reflects our dependence on him. And I'm going to make a a fairly bold statement here, that if we pray for no one, no one will get healed. 
And therefore, if we pray for some people, then maybe some will get healed. So we should pray. And on what basis can I say that? Well, I can say that because the river symbolizes healing. So we're going to finish with an invitation. Revelation 21 and verse 6 says this. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That's the, that's the invitation. The invitation is simply to thirst and he will give of the water of life without cost. And this is a question which is over us as a church at the moment. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the river whose streams make glad the city of God? Are you thirsty for the river of his presence where you can know the safety and security that there is in having God alongside you, God who is mighty to save? Are you thirsty for the river of the Holy Spirit to well up inside you? And create streams of living water that flow out and affect all that you come into contact with. Are you thirsty for the river of healing? To flow in your life bringing wholeness and gladness and healing and salvation to those you encounter. And the invitation is this. If you are thirsty then come and drink. Come and drink deeply. Why? Because he satisfies And you might say to me, well, Simon, what does that look like? Do you know what? I don't really know. I think it looks something like what we had this morning, where the presence of God is so tangible amongst us that we cannot but glorify him. I think it it looks like an all-pervading peace because we know that God is with us. I think it looks like gladness because he is amongst us. I think it looks like people's lives being put back together and mended. I think that's what it looks like to be in the river. And there's an offer this morning. I, I started to write down the relevant words and that came this, and I gave up because there were too many. But it looks like rehydration. Just had a great picture of a grape sort of being pumped back up so it looks more like a, a sorry, a, a raisin being pumped back up so it looks like a grape again. It looks like people who go and dance around in the rain with total abandonment because they just want to get wet. Notice that the rain was falling on the faces of the people in the one song we sang, which means you've got to be looking upwards, not avoiding the rain like this. I had a dream last night and I was talking with someone who I knew, I knew in real life. And he was saying that he, there was a, a kind of a pressure on what he was saying to be in the right place with God so that God would do things. And I found myself in the dream saying, no, it is nothing to do with what we do. It is all about him.
This river is nothing to do with us. It is from him. It is from the very throne room of God. And it brings with it his presence and his spirit and his healing.